Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I've been surprised and mystified and confused by all the signs and news about the worker shortage and what has been causing it. From one side, there is considerable noise about it being caused by lazy folks living off the governmental teat, but I hadn't heard a well-thought-out analysis that wasn't from the conservative side. That is, not until I read a column written by a member of the county board here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Zoe Roberts. I'll have a link to the full article on northernspiritradio.org, but the thoughtful and wide-ranging points made by Zoe made me want to talk more to her, and thankfully she's quite willing to do so. Zoe has brought a lot of riches to our county by her service and by the several articles she's published, but also because, as a trans woman, she was a rare case, one of only 21 transgender people in elected office in the entire USA. We're lucky to have her here in office, and we're also lucky to have her here today for Spirit in Action in person. Zoe, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. And I was very pleased after seeing your article just last week and feeling like you had nailed the answers to some of the questions I've been having recently. I got a hold of you and you were so willing. Uh, do you get a lot of media? I mean, you're on county board for the county of Eau Claire. Do you get a lot of exposure to the world or are you just a particularly hot item on the county board? <laughs> I get some exposure to the world through media. Most of my media exposure, though, comes through writing, writing those pieces. That's kind of how I express myself to the world and, and really share myself and my thoughts. The article that you shared, the commentary shared in the Leader Telegram here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, was What's Behind Supply Worker Shortages? That's the title. I'm sure they gave it. You probably had something better. but Yeah, they gave that title to it. I don't get to name them. <laughs> I just get to write them. So you say you write a lot of them? I write quite a few, yeah. I don't get the Leader Telegram normally, so I don't see it. How many are we talking about? You've been in office for two years. Are we talking about since you're in office or before? Uh, both, actually. Since since I've been in office and before I was in office. Before I was in office, I was an activist, and I focused a lot on LGBTQ rights and specifically trans rights. And I published some on those, and I still continue to publish some on, on those issues. The most recent for the LGBTQ issues was actually published in the Cap Times in Madison, not in Eau Claire. But then various articles get published in different publications that I write pretty much statewide. And what's your expertise? Because it struck me that you were looking at very much a, a widespread economic structure, structural type issues in this article. And I was wondering, so does Zoe have a... PhD in <laughs> economics, I don't know. I have a degree in marketing. Um, I went through UW-Eau Claire for marketing oh, back in the late 90s and graduated in May of 2001, I believe. 
And there's a lot of economic study that comes along with that degree. So I was more than happy to uh, write that article and share some thoughts and some insights. And additionally, when I first graduated from college, I worked in international logistics. And even 20 years ago, the supply chain was, it was like trying to ram a uh, bowling ball through a garden hose, just like the article says. It's been bad, and it's only getting worse. And it has has to do with the labor shortages, sure. But it also has to do with the amount of flow that we're trying to push through the ports and just the limited port size and, and rail lines headed, heading around the country. You have to couple that and then think about it as well, that when you're talking to 18-year-old kids graduating from high school, a lot of those kids, you know, they don't want to become a long-haul trucker and haul things from Wisconsin to California. That's not their life's goal, and that's not what they want to do. So then where do those people come from that do that work? And those, that's partially where immigration comes in. That's partially where... We have to open up things and start paying people and rewarding them for the work that they do. When I first confronted the question, I saw, you know, the unemployment rate is really low. So that says, okay, uh, everybody who wants to have a job has a job. And then there's all this news. As I've gone around Eau Claire, I see, you know, a hiring bonus, 1500 or up to 5000 at a factory. So, wow, they must really want employees. This seems drastically different than two years ago. Now, I did the shipping situation, the stuff coming through our ports, did it get that much worse in those following two years, which, of course, include COVID? So, yeah, with COVID, what you're seeing is you're seeing really a couple of things. You're seeing the, the trucking industry suffer a lot of job losses. So you have fewer truckers to haul the product in the, in the cans from point A to point B. But you're also seeing a shortage of, of rail cars to put the car, you know, to put on the cars and haul to, say, Minneapolis, where they can be offloaded and distributed to the various smaller cities around Minneapolis. So it's a compound problem, and it's not a simple solution. I saw in the news this morning where they're talking about routing some things through Florida. Well, and that's great, but it's going to take transit time it'll take at least an extra week for them and so you're you're dealing with that but then you also have to again deal with the the shortage in trucking and rail cars why do we have that shortage i think that shortage comes from just you know a lot of uh, economic issues as far as you know trying to recruit people into being into doing those jobs you're looking at uh, a problem that has been compounded for a long time. So do truckers make a lot of money? They make so many cents per mile, to my understanding, in most situations. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of overhead for a lot of truckers, and it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of driving. It's time away from their families. It's really not being able to have a family in many cases. So it's a rough occupation for people. So do people want to stay in it? Obviously not. So they're they're trying to get out and they're finding other jobs in this in this new surging market in the economy. So when that happens, how do you replace those people? And that's our conundrum. And is this somehow linked to the past two years, a, a COVID or something else? I think COVID brought it along further. I think that with COVID, what you're seeing is people have kind of had time to sit and think. And analyze what they want to do, how much time they're willing to put in on certain things, whether or not they're willing to do certain jobs and be away from their families and so on and so forth. And so I think COVID gave people time to analyze and figure things out. 
another example with COVID, you know, I, I know, I know people that are uh, women that are mothers, and they deciphered that all they were really working for was to pay for childcare. So why would they go back into the job market just to pay for childcare? Why not just raise their own children? And so that's another aspect. Again, it's compounded by the complexity of of our current situation. And I guess what you're saying also, Zoe, is that there's part of a learning curve that people went through in the last two years. Having stayed at home, having had to stay at home because schools were closed, that therefore they said, hey, I've done this already. Why should I be wasting my life, my money, everything that way? Yeah. Another piece of the puzzle that you refer to is immigration. Mm -hmm. And certainly, since uh, the advent of the Trump doctrine of build the wall, I mean, my understanding is that under Barack Obama as president, that, in fact, there was a number of people deported. I mean, it actually went up. And so there's no way in which he was particularly soft on immigration. Uh, He tried to target people who had specific problems, violations, as opposed to just, you're an immigrant, you're bad. So I would say in some ways he was doing the role of the limitation of immigration that probably is a proper function of our federal government. Uh, with the Trump era, it's we're supposed to see every immigrant as a bad person and suspect, and we shouldn't let them in. That's, that's how I read that. Yeah. The Trump era really brought in a lot of xenophobia, a lot of fear of people from other countries that is really kind of unjustified. I think that with Trump, he he catered to fear and striking fear into the hearts and minds of people. And when we do that, we're really kind of misleading people and spreading a lot of misinformation. And we're really in the long run in this particular instance when we're when we're talking about jobs and and the economy, we're hurting ourselves because immigrants come and they do jobs that Americans won't do. So we. Were- and we wind up hurting our own businesses and we wind up hurting our own economy by not thinking through the things and by not fixing the real problem, which is really that for the last 20 or 30 years, our, immig- our immigration system has been pretty much completely busted and broken. So that's something that has to be fixed in order for us to make progress. And it's hard to do anything about that with xenophobia immobilizing so much of the system. So economics... Uh, have played their role in it. You refer to the role of economics in a bigger picture, though, because one of the things that happened with the United States, it certainly happened in my lifetime, and I'm 17 years older than you, what happened was more and more corporations found that they could make higher profits by having work done overseas with people who don't have minimum wage laws, don't have unions, etc. And so they could get very low labor rates. Stuff could be sold here in the United States for low rates to the people who no longer have the jobs in manufacturing, I guess is what it comes to. That You refer to this in the article as well, Zoe. Yes. I think when we're talking about that, we're talking about organizations offshoring labor. And it's important to note that at the time that they were doing this, this was a great corporate plan. They, they made huge profits by doing it. However, 
they're paying people in in Thailand or China or and so forth something like ten cents to the dollar. So these people are working and they're essentially slaves to the corporate entity that they work for, and they're treated badly because there are no working standards in many of these countries. They don't have a set of laws and a body that will enforce, you know, worker safety. So they they wind up getting cheap labor that way. And the United States has capitalized on that along with uh, most of Europe for many, many years now. The problem is, is that when you wind up with a glut in shipping, in international shipping and logistics, all of that product just sits off the sh- offshore on boats, and it doesn't do us any good then. Plus, it starts costing more. Those cans, each can has a cost. And when I'm talking about a can, I'm talking about a container that comes from offshore. They're called intermodal containers. They each have a cost associated with them, and that cost is going to go up. So that what happen, what will happen is that economically, the attractiveness of offshoring will become less favorable as the cost of international shipping increases because of the, the glut at the port. Right. There's something you didn't mention in your article. And by the way, folks, we are speaking with Zoe Roberts today for Spirit in Action. Zoe is a member of the county board here in the county of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live, and has been serving in that position for about two years with a history, though, in marketing. And as you can tell, is very knowledgeable in the field. One of my thoughts about why transportation, shipping, all of that is having the problems it's having is actually directly related to the growth of Amazon and UPS and FedEx. Currently, there's so many drivers who are running around delivering packages to individual houses that you maybe don't have drivers for the supply trains, the trucks, and so on. Um, that could be part of it. Um, again, it, the, the, these local jobs allow people to stay with their families and not have to be away for a week at a time or two weeks at a time or a month at a time. So that, fa- that favors you know, these local short-haul occupations. A lot of the local uh, like UPS and FedEx drivers and postal service workers don't have CDLs, though. So those vehicles being smaller, they don't have to have a certified you know, driver's license to uh, drive a, a big rig. It's just that my thought that instead of working at a Best Buy shop, you now work for Amazon, either packing things up or driving it to the doors. And so I think we've shifted a, a lot of the jobs that way. Yeah. And you're talking in many regards about service industry and how our country has become service industry related instead of manufacturing related. So our economy, I think, in in this reference is out of balance because we don't make a lot in the United States anymore. We import a lot in order to offer uh, consumers the cheapest prices uh, possible. And so by doing that, we're, we're taking and we're, we're segmenting our economy without manufacturing. What happens in a time of crisis like the pandemic has caused – we lose the ability to manufacture things. You can talk about, you know, the the processing chips for computers, and you have hundreds and thousands of cars uh, that are built and manufactured that are just waiting for a processing chip so that they can be shipped out and sold at dealerships. So dealerships are short cars, which has led to an increase in used car sales. 
which isn't necessarily bad, but it's not necessarily great because used cars use more fuel and don't pass the uh, current emissions in a lot of in a lot of states. So more pollution. I don't want to dismiss the fact that there is there are to some degrees at least shortages of workers. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants in downtown Eau Claire is Thai Orchid. And they've been shut down sometimes because they just can't find workers. And sometimes it's because their workers have been exposed to COVID and can't be there as well. So they've got a sign saying up, we need to hire people. And I don't doubt that it's real. But when I shared your commentary from the leader telegram, Zoe, uh, entitled again, folks, what's behind supply worker shortages? When I shared that, my sister pointed out an article that she had shared and that took place in Florida. Uh, there was a guy who was a Florida man who was doubtful about all the noise being made about worker shortages. And so what he did was to apply for 60 entry-level jobs in the course of a month to check and see how eager people were to And he specifically targeted companies who were making noise about the labor shortage. So these are people who are saying, oh, no, labor shortage. This is really crippling us. And I think maybe there's a political end behind that. So he checked it out. He got one job interview out of the 60. He got some responses via email and all of this kind of thing. And even the place where he did get the job, he found out it was false advertising. They were only, only going to pay minimum wage. They were going to give him 20 hours instead of 40, which is what had been advertised. And so they they did not seem very desperate to have workers. Yeah. Do you see what evidence of that locally here in Eau Claire? This, again, that, that took place in Fort Myers in Florida. I don't know if I've seen any evidence of that locally. I think that I, I have seen restaurants in particular short on labor and uh, i do know that in one of these cases i know the manager and the manager has been struggling to hire people but i don't know that it's going to be an easy fix in this economy because i think that you know people have emerged from from covid in some respects um, not fully emerged obviously because we're not through the pandemic yet but i think people want to be paid for the work that they're doing and I think people are tired of going to work and making min- minimum wage and being exploited for their labor by, you know, wealthy people and wealthy corporations. So I think it's a problem that's not only local, I think, think it extends nationally. And I think that when these people take matters into their own hands, you're seeing strike labor unions go on strike now. And it's because this is the first time that they've had the opportunity to really push the corporations and try to gain some of their some of their lost wages and lost lost bargaining power back in what 40 years 50 years did you grow up as a red baby if you know what that means <laughs> a child of sure the communist what... party that's <laughs> that i there was a term i don't know if that was common maybe in the 40s 50s 60s that uh, people like Pete Seeger referred to as red babies, you know, that they, because American capitalism was supposed to be the be all and end all of our, our country. And so anybody who disagreed with elements of it got, got labeled a red baby. 
But by today's standards, even Eisenhower, who was a Republican, would be labeled, labeled a red baby. Really? Yes, I know. By today's standards, that's yes. true. Because we've gone so far downhill. I mean, Richard Nixon proposed universal health care. So, you know, obviously he's he's at Bernie's level then, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I think I'd trust Bernie a lot more than Richard Nixon personally, but... You know, certainly, certainly in the past, past presidents have tried things and they've gone further than than what we're willing to today. And really, historically, and I've I've had discussions with this with several friends, where what we talk about is how the um, recourse and really kind of the kickback started with Barry Goldwater and Wallace. That's really when we started seeing the the really bad entities play in conservative politics. How that came out is like it's all a reaction to the New Deal from FDR. And what's really interesting is that a good the New Deal actually came from ideas from Bob LaFollette here in Wisconsin. Right, so fighting Bob. It's an interesting standpoint to to face, but it's all a lot of kickback all the way going all the way back to the New Deal. So. I, I think that all of that blowback is going to have to be put aside and regular working people are going to have to join together at some point. And we're going to have to, in Wisconsin, we have what we call the urban-rural divide. And that urban-rural divide is going to have to crash down in order for us to get over it. It's a sad state of affairs that, you know, when, when we hear people talk up here in Eau Claire, sometimes we'll hear them talk about Milwaukee and Madison like there are other states or even other countries and it's a part of our own state so we were again driving wedges and dividing people instead of trying to bring people together. Could you say a little bit more about your background your work background Zoe because it strikes me that a lot of your ideas are extremely progressive and that's something I like so I'm happy to find that where did you grow up in Wisconsin what work did you do how did you get to this point of view oh boy so I started I think my first job was at a grocery store in the in my hometown I I grew up in Mondovi which is a small town of about 2,500 people and from there I went went and I worked at a camp uh, in the summers for six summers I worked in electronics manufacturing. At one point, I went and I went. Then I went back to school and graduated from UW Eau Claire with my marketing degree. And from there, I started at uh, Menards, which is the third largest home home improvement company in the country. And I started as a planogrammer and then became an analyst. And I was running. That's when I was running the international logistics in the cans across the across the ocean and controlling i don't know something like 165 million a year in sales at that time and from there i went i worked at united healthcare and I became an analyst there uh united healthcare being a fortune 6 company and then oh in god december of 2019 i suppose i decided it was time for a change and i started kind of entering into politics as far as, you know, like a career, like a job. And so in uh, January, I became statewide field director for Citizen Action of Wisconsin, which is uh, a progressive organization in Wisconsin that works on things like climate and health care to help improve things in Wisconsin. That's really an interesting job shift. I, I imagine it wasn't to step up the economic 
ladder. That is to say, I don't think Citizens Action can pay as much. Not that Menards pays well or that you, the health care, I imagine, do pay better. Did you take a cut in pay in order to do this? I'd say it was actually, no, I would say that I, I probably wind up a little bit better now because intrinsically I work with just much better people and I like these people. I like what I do. So it's not all about the money. Financially, uh, I probably make a little bit more now as a director than I did as, as an analyst at United Healthcare. Insurance wise, it's a wash. It's roughly equal. But the people are much, much better, and they're, they treat you much more like a person instead of a number. There are a number of really well-paying jobs that I would in no way want to take the job. I just wouldn't want to put up with it. And, and like you say, it's coworkers. It's what you're doing. If you're doing a job that's going to deprive children of health care, that probably doesn't sit well. Did you have those kind of issues at all with your job when you're working with United Healthcare? Um, I worked in Medicare and retirement, so I didn't have such a problem with children, but we'd have issues where people wouldn't qualify for this imaginary election period, and we wouldn't be able to enroll them into the plan that they wanted. And that was always harsh because you'd see letters and fulfillment come back where they would be ask, you know, asking, please help me, I need this coverage, I, you know, and, and we've, we had done everything we could but there was nothing more we could do because of, because of the government regulations with uh, through uh, CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So you watch some of the suffering or some of the ways that the strictures of government and corporations limit what, what happens. I don't know if the uh, open enrollment period that was is part of Medicare, I don't know if that originated from a government need or from an industry need. Uh, I would like to think it was a government kind of thing that wanted that because the way I always viewed it is that I thought that we should do away with the election periods in, in the regards that we currently have them and use them and just place a number on it for people. Like if you if you had every year somebody gets like four election counts down or if you have uh, what they call, now call like dual eligible that provides you an election period every month. If you wanted to change your plan, you could change it every month. I would just say, you know, set it as a number and let it count down and then refresh it at the, at, at the end of the year for the, for the next year. That's how I would do it, and it would spread out the, the, the amount of enrollments instead of packing all of the enrollments into this one tight little window. October to November, right? Yeah, October 15th to December 7th, I think, is the actual time frame. But I, I, what I would do is I would spread those out and um, allow people to make choices during the, during the year so that you're not having to hire temporary workers to come in and do that job because there is a lot of regulation and a lot of rules that surround it that – you know, it's very hard for them to come in and learn all of it, all, you know, on a whim, essentially. <laughs> I think by spreading it out and by allowing people to come and go as they please on the various plans, the people would be would benefit from it. Well, I have to look at that myself this year because I found out I was on Medicare Advantage instead of Medicare. And I, I didn't realize there was actually a difference that Medicare Advantage is not actually Medicare controlled, it's actually uh, a foreign thing. And whereas there are Medicare, Medigap policies, which are simply Medicare. Yeah, the Medicare Part C plan that you're on for Medicare Advantage, 
uh, it's still Medicare. It's just that it's offered through um, an independent insurer. So it's not original Medicare, which is offered through CMS. So what happens is there's a capitation rate for every person that enrolls into a Medicare Part C plan that CMS pays the insurer. And sometimes there's a rate that the individual has to pay as well. So you're still technically on Medicare. It's just that you're getting your insurance potentially with enhanced benefits through uh, an, an independent insurer instead of the government. We'll have to talk more about that later. Uh, folks, today for Spirit in Action, we have Zoe Roberts here. I became aware of some of the work ideas of Zoe by a commentary piece published in Leader Telegram here in Eau Claire about worker shortages. And I did some more research, and I, I've known of Zoe in background, but I hadn't delved into the subject. There's a lot to keep track of in this whole wide world. But Zoe is here today for Spirit in Action. Our website is Northern Spirit Radio. Dot org, where you can find links to all of our programs for the past 16 and a half years, all of our guests, the stations, 40-plus stations across the United States that carry our programs. You can find links to this article by Zoe and another one from Florida that I think you'll find will provide some information about labor shortage and what is or isn't really behind it, and also what I always hope to do is lift up truth and light so that people can make better informed decisions. Uh, Zoe also serves on the county board for Eau Claire, and we're going to delve into that in just a moment, Zoe. But all of those links to all the programs and all the people and websites, it's all on northernspiritradio.org, along with a place for you to post comments. You can donate also to that. Our support comes from our listeners, not from corporations, not from government, because we want to serve the listeners' needs. So please check all of that out on northernspiritradio.org and support your local community radio station here in Eau Claire. These programs were born on WHYS, a great low-power FM station right here in the center of Eau Claire. It's spread across the country. Please support them because you get an alternative local voice that you get nowhere else. So please support your local community radio station. Zoe Roberts, as I mentioned, is on the county board, has been for almost two years. And you mentioned, Zoe, that you started working for Citizen Action of Wisconsin and got more involved in politics. Could you explain a little bit about your launching in that direction? What I think is so important and why I include this on Northern Spirit Radio programs is I think that a lot of people can have facts, but facts don't matter near as much as motivation. Okay. So I've always been interested in politics. I've watched Meet the Press for many years on Sunday mornings. And it gets interesting because... I think it must have been 2017 when Jeff and Jody were running for state assembly and state senate, respectively. A bunch of folks were at Scooters, which is the gay bar in Eau Claire. I was there with my friend, and they recruited us to go out and canvas. And at this stage, I was very early in transition, so I was really kind of skeptical of going out and canvassing for a political candidate. For the first time, right before the election, as somebody who was very freshly out and had very, you know, months worth of transition under her belt. 
So anyways, we went out, we canvassed, we did our shift. Uh, we lived up to that obligation that we made. And election night came along about a week later. And then we, I, I had taken six of my friends to see the Nutcracker performed by the Moscow Ballet at the New Pablo Center at the time. Once it broke, we were expecting to see results over at Scooters again because that's where this whole thing kind of started for us, right? So we went back over there and nobody was there. So we asked the bartender, where is everybody? And he's like, oh, they're all up at the Clarion in the, uh, having, the, having the watch party. So then we went up to the watch party and from there, Anne Francis tried to recruit me to run for a local office. And I was, uh, I was like, oh gosh, not me. I'm not the one that you want. And uh, I said, but you know, I know somebody who's interested. And at that point it was uh, Laura Benjamin and so Laura was in Thailand at the time, and she got back about a month later, and we sat down in the back of the, the Galloway Grill. It was me, Laura, and he who shall re- remain nameless uh, at this stage, and my friend Heather, and we formed Laura's campaign that night. And she ran for city council. And I was thinking, great, I've got a local politician. I've got Anne, who just ran Jeff Smith's campaign. I'm thinking, I've got this set. And here's where it really gets weird is that at the time that we did this, I could, I had had a double ear infection, so I could only hear if you were within about three feet of me. <laughs> so I was re- trying to read lips for, for part of this uh, as we were forming the, her campaign. And anyways, what happened was after a while, Anne was pretty burnt out from running Jeff's campaign, and the other guy just disappeared. So then it became me and Laura. And I kind of by default became her campaign manager and got her elected. And that was kind of my first foray into uh, into the political realm. And really when I got into politics, I just wanted to help get good people elected to office, people that had a vision that I shared and people that I thought could do some good for the community and for the state and the country. You've referred to the fact you're a trans woman, scooters. I, I don't know if it's closed right now because the construction they're doing right by there, it seems like it'd be very difficult to park anywhere nearby. But the scooters as an alternative place in that, how much does that inform your identity and your politics? The alternative, the LGBTQ type perspective. It informs it a little bit. I mean, there are things that I'm I'm very big on. I did take as a county board member and pass a revised housing ordinance. So the housing ordinance in Eau Claire County includes for protected statuses, not only sexual orientation and so many other things, but it also includes gender identity, gender expression, age, and veteran status, which are unique to Eau Claire. That's not common everywhere. Veterans status that so does that usually uh, my my thought would be that usually if you were a veteran that you could be prejudiced in favor of because you know there's always specials for veterans i think the times have changed on that i think with some of the younger veterans that come back they they do face some discrimination in the housing market and in the job market because employers and renters are afraid of them having ptsd and so there's a concern with that it was important for me to add veteran status to that list of protected statuses. Okay. So, again, you're on the county board, and, yeah. and you were helping Laura get elected to the city council here. How much is Eau Claire, the county, or the city, 
an anomaly in terms of the outside Madison and Milwaukee politics of the state? Well, I think generally speaking, when, you ha- when you're talking about Eau Claire or La Crosse or Appleton or Green Bay, the city centers remain fairly liberal throughout the state. It's when you, you can almost draw like a, like a bubble around the city centers, and for, as you work your way out, it gets more conservative into the rural landscape. And again, that urban-rural divide is tough to breach. Because essentially what we're finding, and I, I know this through my work, is that we're finding they want the same things everybody else does in the rural communities. They want health care. They want, they want their kids to have a good education, just like we all do. But they're a little worried about some of the lifestyle things that happen in, in urban communities, and they're worried that their kids can't keep up and it, it, you know, when they go to college. And so they're worried about a lot of things that I think – come from just exposure to life and they are right i mean i when i went to college the first time right out of high school i was not ready for it having come from a small school and a small town i was way too sheltered and i had not experienced enough life and by the time you went back the second time when you got your marketing degree you were already a person of the world um well i was more of a person of the world than i was before i don't i don't know There's still a lot of traveling, a lot of sites to see, a lot of things to do that I haven't experienced. And I always try to keep an open mind and try to to treat people with the same dignity and respect that I expect, you know, in return. Um, That's just my general rule. And I've got a lot of friends from around the world because of that. And generally speaking, I can tell you this one thing that is kind of an immutable truth is that if you do that... These people, no matter where they are, no matter what the barrier is, they're going to remain loyal to you because you're loyal to them. So you mentioned serving on Laura's campaign for city council. You didn't talk about how you ended up getting on the county board. What, what was that? So the county board for me came after Laura's campaign, and they had continued working on me uh, and essentially... What happened is Brandon Buchanan resigned, and I took the appointment. They had encouraged me, and I was going to run for a local office anyways, and then Brandon resigned, and he was my the county board rep for my area. And I took the appointment, and then I had to turn around and run for office again six months later to keep the seat <laughs> because they're two-year terms. It's you know, uh, a short turnaround time. And... I'm wondering about how how dicey that felt to you. Again, as a trans woman, you are not the normal thing in most places, in most in most cities, in most counties, in most state level, in the national legislature. That's grown in the last two years. But the time you that you went for office, you were still on the frontier. Yeah, I think I was, at the time that I took the appointment, I think I was around the 23rd or so trans person in office at that stage, which isn't really a lot. No, that's very little. That's not, <laughs> we're talking about in the nation, right? <laughs> yeah, in the nation, yeah. And really, there's not a whole lot more worldwide. There are some, I know, there are some in Mexico and some in Canada and and in Europe, but... 
it, it's it's a it's a small group of people. So, what led you to take the risk? I mean, that must have felt fairly vulnerable. Yeah, um, you share a big vulnerability when you decide to run for office as anybody. And then it's even larger, in, in my opinion, when you're a trans woman and when you're different, because you're, you're, you're having to challenge that additional norm. So that's, that's something that you have to be willing to do and be prepared for. And so I think at the time that I did it, I had a, I had a really good support structure of friends in place that, would, that were there for me, and it, it, it kind of eased it. And plus, I had gotten to be a little bit, little bit more known in the political world here in Eau Claire locally. I'm unaware of exactly how it works with our county board. You say county board for your area. So which area do you represent of the county? District 27, which... Uh, it's kind of it's an unusually shaped district. It runs fr- from really downtown Eau Claire into the town of Seymour. It's like got a hook on it essentially. Kind of runs down along the old river through past Uniroyal and such, um, and then up through uh, I think about LaSalle Street. Is this a liberal district? And part of what I'm wondering about with the county is because, as you said, the further you get from the center of these cities. The further you get from them, the more conservative it tends to get. I would say that it's a mix. I think I won by 30 votes. <laughs> so not a lot, but it's a low turnout for spring elections, you know. So when you say you won by 30 votes, 30 out of how many? Oh, just shy of 700 from what I remember. Okay, so that, that's pretty close. Is there the city and country divide represented in your district? Mm, I would say a little bit. There's, you know, as you as you work your way out from the city center in downtown Eau Claire, it does change and get more rural as you get out toward the center. Now, in my district as it was, or the district as it was, is, is probably the more appropriate way to say it. It really kind of is contained mostly in the city. So, differences like probably going from urban to suburban more or less but the way that the district lines are being drawn for the next election as of right now for this district it will go from urban to suburban to rural you've already mentioned zoe that often small towns have their prejudice their fears the the lifestyle the broader lifestyle that uh, i think has become acceptable in most of the cities uh, that in the small towns, it's still more an object of fear. How do you feel about the new district lines? I don't really know how to feel about the new district lines. I guess I guess they they are what they are. We, yeah, as a, as a politician, I don't get to choose my constituents. That's not what we should be doing. And unfortunately, that that would be called gerrymandering, and that's what they do at the state level in Wisconsin in a dramatic way. But it's not the right way that things should get done. The way that things should get done is that the district line should be drawn fairly and reasonably within what they call communities of interest. If those communities of interest align, then that should be, you know, fa- that should be a fair map. If you're taking and specifically splitting a city up like they did Appleton last time, they split Appleton into five assembly districts. That's not fair to the people of Appleton because they're not gaining the representation that is fair. Uh, to their community then. 
So that's something that we have to avoid. Fair maps are a critically important thing in Wisconsin and really nationally at that level because it has it has a lot to do with our freedoms to, to vote and our freedoms for good representation. I'm afraid I'm a little bit woefully ignorant here about how county districts are drawn. Who draws them up? In Eau Claire County, we have a GIS specialist that has drawn the maps up, and they're based off of largely the Census Bureau results, so every 10 years. And so I guess this is, as opposed to the political wrangling that happens at our state level, this is done by someone who is at least theoretically nonpartisan. What kind of guidance does a local, because fair maps do matter to me, and I'm, I'm very concerned about gerrymandering and the way that some political entities are trying to suppress the political voice of the people. You know, I, I don't really, I don't, I'm not an expert on the process that the the GIS expert uses. I did meet with him to ask him about some of the decisions and it's all just based off population. So, you know, the district is going to change. It's going to look different and the you know it might it might act differently it might vote differently and there's nothing that i can do about that and that's the way that it should be because the district rep should be chosen by the people uh, that is going that they feel is and really by the by the people so that they're getting the person that they think is going to represent them the best how that all logically works out it is really just as far as i saw just numbers for areas and trying to split the districts up as evenly as possible. I'm wondering, Zoe, if your identity as a trans woman has affected your representation. By there, I'm specifically wondering if there's people who reacted against you or in favor of you, because this is still such a new thing for so many areas in the country. I'm grateful that you not only got appointed, but were able to get reelected. I'm just wondering what kind of mileage that took out on you, because I imagine there are people who are fearful or concerned or who come at you directly because of concerns. There are. And again, these things happen to any politician. So people like to single out politicians and say bad things about us, no matter what side we're on. No matter what we do, half the country is going to be for you and half is going to be against you. And that's kind of the life that you have to be willing to accept if you're going to get into politics and be an elected official. You're not going to please everybody all of the time. And that's just the reality. I think it takes a very personal level, though, when people deal with trans issues. I think that the same thing happened with the whole gamut of gay and lesbian and such over the years. People, fortunately, we have a state that's represented by a lesbian, right? Which I think is wonderful. But she's right there alongside a very conservative Ron Johnson. And so it almost feels like the state has a very mixed psyche going on there. So anyway, I'm I'm really wondering about your experience. Well, I think my experience, I think that there was apprehension at first. And I think that once they saw that I make decisions the same as everybody else, I do what I think is right for my constituents and for the county as best as I can. Um, and I don't always vote with, you know, the, the, the liberals, and I don't always vote with the conservatives. I'm somewhere kind of in between, and I just try to do what's right for the community. I think once people realize that, they, it, it's gotten a lot better locally. As far as, you know, 
having a rough time. Sure, at first it was a little. It's a, it's definitely an adjustment. Everybody will warn you after you do your first TV interview. Don't go out and check the check the Facebook site. Don't read through the comments. <laughs> they will warn you not to do it, and you're going to do it, and it's brutal. But you learn from it, and you learn just to try to do the best you can and be like everybody else, because that's all there is. So when is re-election for you? Well, I've decided not to run for another term on county board. I have some personal issues that I need to take care of, and so as of right now, I, I'm not seeking re-election. Well, that's easy. <laughs> or maybe it's much needed, I imagine. <laughs> I I personally would not like to run for any office because I know it takes a lot of wear and tear out on your soul, your attention. Some people thrive on that, but I prefer having a life. Well, yeah, having a life is great. And, I, I you know... One of the big differences for me from the start to now is that when I was working at United Healthcare, I would I would start work at six o'clock in the morning and I would end at two thirty in the afternoon. Set hours every single day, but now as a director for Citizen Action of Wisconsin, I start work at ten a.m. Uh, with my team and really nine a.m. or eight thirty a.m. and kind of doing preparatory stuff and running numbers and figuring out the data and doing all of that kind of work before the team gets in so that I can fill them in and kind of run any sort of analysis that I need to run before the day starts. And really, I'll wrap up right now at 6.30 at night, but next year when we get into an election cycle, I mean, I could be working from 8 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock at at night pretty easily every every night during an election cycle and so that that's that's a part of the decision is that just really it doesn't fit with this new new job as well as i would have liked i guess to continue to continue serving so it it has stretched me thin at some points just with time to do the work and so what hap- what has happened and the adjustment that I've made is that I use my weekends or my days off in order to do the county work and then uh, do my very best to attend all of the meetings for the county. But it, it is, is a juggling act more than, it, more than ever before. Well, I am grateful that you've been willing to do this work. I mean, it, personally, as I said, I think that uh, serving in position of any almost any of the levels of representation going up in our government one job i would never want to have is president because you have people hating you so strongly and people loving you so strongly it's got to be crazy in so many ways uh so i know you're doing it at the county board level here in eau claire wisconsin and i'm thankful that you've taken that on and that you've served us for two years and that you've done that in spite of the fact, the risk that that comes to you personally. I, I think you must have a very strong soul in order to be able to do that. And I appreciate that so much and that you wrote this article. Again, folks, I'll have a link to it on NorthernSpiritRadio.org about worker shortages, what's really behind them in the big picture, as opposed to people are lazy and don't want to work. It's an eye-opening view that Zoe Roberts brings to us. Thanks so much for writing the article, for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Oh, you're welcome. It was great being here. And folks, links for Zoe and for the articles I've mentioned are on northernspiritradio.org. 
Before I go, I'll share one of Holly Near's best-known songs, Singing for Our Lives, inspired by many things, but especially the murder of Harvey Milk, the first openly gay person elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. This song has become something of an anthem, with folks adding verses as it has traveled the world, building on the inclusiveness of Holly's message, embracing with power and compassion all folks, including those of the wide range of LGBTQIA identities. I'll send you out with Holly Near and Singing for Our Lives, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo of our healing.